2 Samuel chapter 10 and verse number 1. Now it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died. And Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore, Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Now when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers and from the king of Makkah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rehob, Ishtab, and Makkah were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him, Before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abisha, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people. And for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians. And they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing. They also fled before Abisha. And entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon. And went to Jerusalem. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. And Hadad-Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam. And Shobach, the commander of Hadad-Ezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings were, and then all the kings who were servants to Hadad-Ezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore.
Well, the title of our message tonight is The King's Kindness Rejected. The King's Kindness Rejected. And in our study, if you'll remember last Wednesday of chapter 9, we emphasized that God's kingdom is indeed a kingdom of kindness. We, we bring uh, such an application of the surface out of 2 Samuel because we acknowledge that through the life of David that his kingship is a portrait of the kingship of Christ. David, of course, is no perfect king, but he does point us to the perfect king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we are learning about David's kingdom is a reflection of the kingdom of God. So again, back in chapter 9, uh, David's kindness toward Mephibosheth, uh, Saul's grandson and the surviving son of Jonathan in chapter 9 is a reminder for us that, that God's kingdom is indeed a kingdom of kindness. His kindness toward us is undeserving. It is often surprising. But his grace and kindness is based upon his covenant with us in Jesus Christ. And God is always faithful to his covenant promises. You know, we experience the kindness of God every single moment of our lives. Every breath that you and I take, every beat of our heart is a gift of grace. It is a gift of kindness from our King. There's no way that you and I could even rightly number all the ways that he shows us kindness on a daily basis. Even today, the amount of times that he has showed us kindness, we, we really couldn't count all of that. We used to sing a song growing up, count your many blessings, name them one by one. I mean, really, if you could logistically do all of that, you would still miss a host of blessings and a host of kindness that... Perhaps you didn't even know that God provided for you in our day-to-day -day living. The greatest demonstration of his kindness, of course, is in relation to his wrath. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God will be revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. So we conclude that each moment you and I are spared from God's wrath is an experience of his great kindness to us. It's an experience, or it's an experience of his great grace. There's never a moment when we should not be thankful for the kindness of God. And of course, the purpose of his kindness, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, is to lead us to repentance. In other words, all of God's kindness is for the purpose of turning our hearts back to him, pointing our focus on who he is. So really, we are in one of two groups tonight. We are either counted among those who gratefully receive his kindness by acknowledging his kingship in our lives, or we're among those who hard-heartedly reject his kindness by ignoring his kingship in our lives. In chapter 9, as we looked at, Mephibosheth gladly receives the kindness of the king. But when you open up chapter 10, we have a different response to the king's kindness. It's a response of contempt, a response of rejection. So let's, let's look at the 
verses before us this evening, we're going to bring out three different things about the king and his kindness. Number one, we see, first of all, that the king shows kindness. The king shows kindness. And we might even add here the word again. The king shows kindness again. Look at it there in verse number one. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. So, so David said, here it is, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Now, just in the first two verses, there are a couple of surprises here in this expression of David's kindness. One I wrote down, King David is choosing to show kindness to an enemy of Israel. That's the first big surprise to me. Who was Nahash? You have to go back into 1 Samuel to get a good glimpse of who he was. Early in Saul's reign, he was known as a cruel tyrant. And it was under his reign that the Ammonites had a long history of hostility toward the people of God. Let me read you 1 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, he came up and he encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. All right, now that's his posture toward Israel. I don't think this is the type of person we would naturally desire or find it easy to show kindness to. And David's not waking up today and saying, let me, let, let me think about the nicest person in the kingdom that I can show kindness to. Oh, Nahash, now he is the nicest guy in the kingdom. That's, that's not the scenario at all. I think we would find it appropriate, rather, if the Scripture read to us that David took this opportunity on the occasion of Nahash's death to seize the Ammonites and to bring them under subjection because of their past history with Israel. But once again, this is an expression of the often surprising nature of God's kindness. David says, I want to show kindness to Nahash's family. Which, which leads me to the second surprising thing about the opening two verses, that somewhere not recorded for us, Nahash has showed kindness to David. That's what it says there at the end of verse number two. I want to show kindness to Nahash, or Nahash's son, rather, Haran, because his father Nahash showed kindness to me. But the problem you and I have is that we have no record of this. So, so we don't know what this was. However, I do want to make it clear that I do not believe that this has anything to do with David feeling that he owed the family something. All right, This is not one of those deals as if Nahash did something for me under the table and now i gotta, I got to do something for him. I think this was a genuine desire to show kindness. The narrator just happens to point out that somewhere along the way that we have no idea or any clue about, Nahash was kind to David. And the reason why the narrator is pointing out David's genuine kindness is because this is exactly what the people of God's kingdom do. They show kindness even to those who are their enemies. This is what the people of God's kingdom do. But in the midst of these surprises, let's not lose sight of what's actually happening. Nahash is dead. 
So it's not to Nahash that David is desiring necessarily to show his kindness, but to his son, Hanan, who is now the new king of Ammon. You see, David's desire was to show kindness and comfort to Hanan and his family on the account of Nahash's death. He sincerely desired to comfort them, to console them in their mourning. By the way, this this type of kindness goes a long way, doesn't it? I know at least in tragedy, we may not always remember what was said to us or maybe what someone did for us, but, but we never forget who was there for us in the moment of those tragedies. So, so, so this is a sincere thing. And this type of kindness would, would, would certainly go a long way, one would think. So, so David acts upon this. Verse 2, he sent by the hand of his servants to comfort Heron concerning his father. And so David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. But we quickly discover, however, that his kindness was not well received. Look at it there in verse 3. The princes or the commanders, these are not necessarily princes the way that we would view them today. These are more or, like, more or less army generals. These are, these are his consultants. All right, these commanders of the people of Ammon, they said to Hanan, their Lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he sent these covetors to you? Has David not rather sent these servants to you to search the city, to to spy it out, to to overthrow it? You see what's happening here? These counselors, these these commanders in Hanan's kingdom, they they come to him and they say, "Do, do you actually think David really cares about you? You think he's actually interested in bringing you encouragement and comfort? He's not here to comfort you. He's here to get something from you. David's sneaky. He's cunning. He's not actually interested in your well-being. So these counselors, they, they despised King David's motives. They, they questioned his approach, and they planted seeds of suspicion and distrust in the eyes of their own king, even though these men genuinely came as messengers of comfort. John Woodhouse, in his commentary, said this, they displayed an attitude that poisons too many human relationships, distrust and suspicion. All they could see was a non-existent, hostile intention. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love, true love, gives the benefit of the doubt. But there's always going to be those characters in our life that will keep us from seeing the goodness of someone else's words. They'll keep us from seeing the goodness of someone's actions or intentions. And this is where great harm is caused in our relationships. And let me just remind you tonight that it's not good to be that kind of person. It's not good to be a suspicious person. It's not good in your marriages. It's not good in your friendships. It's not good in any of your relationships. But that is exactly what these men were. 
Instead of seeing the genuine motive for why David's servants came to comfort, encourage it, they were always looking for the negative side of it. What's he really doing? What did he really mean by that? What are they really doing here? It can't be for encouragement. It can't be for comfort. David is not up to this. They're they're suspicious. They don't trust him. And as a result, they reject the king's kindness. And they convinced the king himself, King Haman, that is, that that's what they were doing. And so instead of welcoming these comforters, verse 4 tells us that, that he abused them. He abused them. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. I have struggled reading this verse with a straight face this week. Really struggle with it. But this, this is serious abuse here, all right? Because at the first reading of it, we're trying to figure out, he did what to them? No, no, no. That's exactly what he did to them, all right? This is exactly what they did. Look at it in verse 4. Therefore, Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. (laughs) What a scene we have here, right? By the way, we talked about Sunday verse-by-verse preaching, how it's my goal to preach every verse of the Bible. So when you preach every verse of the Bible, you can't skip stuff like this. You can't. And whoever's told me through the years that expository preaching is boring, they've never read 2 Samuel chapter 10. And some of you have because you've been texting about it to me, reading ahead, knowing I can't wait till we get to chapter 10 and we hear about the rumps in chapter 10. What was going on with that, pastor? In fact, I almost entitled the sermon tonight, but why? Some of you will get that later. Look, this is humiliation. That is what this is. They cut their beards in half. All right, so picture with me my beard and half of it being gone and the other half staying. Now, some of your beards look like that, but that's because you're 16 trying to grow a beard. But all right, this is like legitimate stuff here. They shave half of the beard off. They keep the other beard on. that's, That's the picture. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Because in this day and in this culture, a man's beard was his dignity. So to have it forcefully removed by someone else, it was deeply humiliating. So what Hanan does here is extremely purposeful. He wants them to look ridiculous. He wants these servants of King David to be embarrassed. And if that wasn't enough, he cuts off their garments from the waist down, forcing them to walk practically naked or I guess half naked back home so Hanan is not only emasculating them he's challenging David to think twice before he ever seeks to show kindness to him again all of this on the simple notion of suspicion suspicion cynicism and no proof they they had no evidence but they go and they humiliate these guys just because they think David's up to something differently than he was actually involved in. But here again, we see the kindness of the king. Because look at it in verse 5. When David found out that his messengers had been treated this way, he sent word to them to stop right where they were. You have to love this. The Bible tells us here in verse 5 that they happened to be in Jericho at this point. And so David, because he loved them, because he had heard about what had happened to them, 
on account of his kindness. He wanted to save them from any further humiliation. He wanted to restore their dignity. He wanted to restore their honor. No doubt, he sent them clothing. That was the easy part. But he also wanted them to stay in Jericho until their beards had grown fully back. And it was at that point they could return to Jerusalem. Now, now watch this in verse 5. It says that these men were greatly ashamed. They were greatly ashamed. They were embarrassed, embarrassed, greatly ashamed. But what's the king doing? In his kindness, he is covering their shame. That's what he's doing. It's, it's, it's a wonderful picture of what King Jesus does for us in our shame. When we have been wronged, when we have wronged God ourselves, we, we experience guilt and humiliation and embarrassment and in shame. Look, the king comes and he covers that shame with his grace and his mercy and his love. The kindness of the king. He's not only showing kindness to his enemies. He's showing kindness to those who belong to him. Those whom his enemies have mistreated. The king shows kindness. Write down number two. The king shows patience. The king shows patience. Well, verse 6 says that the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David. Now, that's interesting because the text doesn't say that David was necessarily repulsed by it. And it's important that we point that out because I believe what the narrator wants us to see here is that this was Ammon's perspective of things, not necessarily David's. This is how they viewed the situation. The the Ammonites thought that David was probably repulsed by their decision-making. So so instead of reconciling the situation or or ignoring it altogether, they escalate the issue by initiating aggression against Israel and their king. And the only thing that the king has done to them is show them kindness. That's it. But all of a sudden, we see Hanan pulling the troops together to go to war. Now, you talk about things escalating quickly. That escalated very quickly. David has a pure motive, a genuine desire. I want to encourage Hanan and his family because his daddy died. And now, all of a sudden, Hanan is ready to whoop David? Well, this is how the enemies of God's king often respond to his kindness. The enemies of God's king often respond with hostility. With aggression. They don't want God's king to simply walk away. They want him to be destroyed. So let's, let's summarize verses 6 through 8. We're not going to go back and read it, but let's summarize it. Ammon hires others to join them. They go and get the Syrians. And they come out to go to battle against Israel. So what does David do? Yeah, he calls his chief commander. He calls Joab. And he sends Joab. He doesn't go himself. He sends Joab and all the army to go out to meet the Ammonites and the Syrians. And that move on David's part, it was purely defensive. Now, you have to appreciate the patience of David here. Because just think about it for just a moment. In in our human flesh, if somebody would have treated our messengers that way, we would have been calling the troops. Hanan thinks he can do this to my guys. Well, he's got another thing coming. 
I'm fixing to show them who has the real razors in town. But it's not that at all. David's not on the offense. David's not retaliating. He's purely playing the role of defense here. He's putting the army on standby, so to speak. Preparing them for whatever move the Ammonites and Syrians might make. And so Joab's job was simply to prepare and act as a deterrence. In fact, we know it was not aggression because King David doesn't even go. He doesn't even go. And then we come to verses 9 through 12. And what we have here is Joab communicating the strategy before sending the army out. He was going to take some of the army and line up on the south side against the Syrians. Since indeed the Ammonites had recruited them while Abisha, his his brother, was going to take some of the army and line up on the other side in the fields against the Ammonites. He's, He's dividing and conquering, so to speak. He's planning the strategy. Look at verse 11. Then Joab said to Abisha, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you'll come over and help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you then I will come over and help you. Okay, that's the plan. That's the plan. Divide and defend. Divide and defend. Help each other out if necessary. And then you come to verse 12 and you see three important things that Joab tells Abisha. And look at these as they're broken down for us in the verse. Number one, he tells him, be of good courage. Be of good courage. I know we didn't wake up today wanting to go to battle. But Abisha, we can do this. We can do this. We're going to go in the power of God. We're going to go in the name of the Lord. Let's be of good courage. That's what he says in the next phrase. Let's be strong for our people, for the cities of our God. He's got the right motive in place. We're out here to defend God's honor. We're out here to protect the people of God. Let's do this for our people and for our God. But notice this last phrase. This very well may be the most important statement in the entire chapter. Joab looks at Abisha in verse 12 and he says, the Lord will do what is good in his eyes. Let's be of good courage. Let's go out there and defend the honor of our people in the name of our God. And we're going to leave the results to God. We're going to leave the results to God because the Lord will do. Think about this church family. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. You know why that's so important? Because Joab didn't have a clue what the Lord was going to do. He didn't have any idea whatsoever how the outcome of this battle was going to go. But what he did know, what he did know was that the Lord would only do what was good in his sight. God is going to do what is best for his glory. God is going to do what is best for for his purposes. Abisha, we don't know who's going to win, but we're going to be strong, we're going to defend the honor of our people, and we're going to trust that God is going to do what is right in his own eyes. Now, let's be honest, because this is where some of us are tonight. Just as Joab didn't know what the outcome of this battle was going to be, some of you have no idea what the outcome of this season you're in is going to be. You don't know what the outcome of this marital trial that you're in is going to be. You don't know the outcome of this mess financially that perhaps you're in. You don't know the outcome of this doctor's report that you're waiting to hear back from. 
You don't know what the outcome of the battle in front of you is going to be. But what you do know and what you do need to be reminded of tonight is that the Lord will do to him what seems good. That's what we do know. Whatever the news will be, whatever the finances come back as, whatever the relationship, what we do know is that the Lord will do what seems good to him. And that's what faith is. Faith is knowing that the Lord is good and that he does what is good. And what is good is determined by God, not us. That's what faith is. It's knowing that the Lord is good, that he always does what is good, and that what is good is determined by him and not by us. What is it about patience that we see from the king here? Well, for one... David doesn't retaliate against Ammon on the basis of what they did to his servants. He made no plans to attack them. The placement of Joab and the army is purely on the account of the Ammonites' aggression toward them. But David's position is one of patience. Patience. Don't attack. Defend if necessary. And so according to verses 13 through 14, when Joab and Abisha showed up with their armies to defend themselves, is actually a funny little scene, isn't it? The Syrians fled. It's almost, almost like they didn't expect anybody to show up. <laughs> well, here comes Joab and the Syrians fled. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians were running, they didn't want to stick around either. So, so they fled. And what did Joab and Abisha do? They didn't pursue them. No, this is, again, instructions from the king. He is showing patience. Joab and Abisha took their armies, and they went back to King David. They went back to Jerusalem. They, they let it alone. They let it alone. No retaliation. No bloodshed. Simple, simple patience. Now, perhaps David had even hoped that Hanum would apologize. Maybe that's why he's being so patient. Maybe he hoped that Hanan would repent of what he did to the king's messengers and reconcile their relationship. The, the king evidently was patiently waiting for this. But do you know the king is still patiently waiting tonight? King Jesus, that is. In his mercy and in his kindness, he is delaying his judgment because he is patient. He's a patient king. Perhaps sometimes we think about that from time to time when we see all the ungodliness and unrighteousness that is around us. Why, why is Jesus delaying his second coming? Why hasn't God come back yet and poured out his wrath upon the world? Let me, let me tell you why he hasn't done that. Because 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God is long-suffering. That God is patient. He wants all who are willing to repent and return to him. But there's coming a day when the king's patience will end. And that's the third and final point. The king shows kindness. The king shows patience. Number three, the king shows up. The king shows up. Look at it through verses 15 through 19. Now, now before we read the verses, let me just, just make a point of observation here. It occurred to me that throughout this chapter, 
we have seen King David sending people, sending people. He's sending his servants. I don't know if you caught that or not, but he sent messengers to Ammon. He sent help to his messengers who had been abused. He sent Joab and his army to stand guard against the Ammonites and the Syrians. But now the time has come for the king not to just send, but to go himself. And when the king shows up, let me tell you something, friends. It signals a big change in circumstances. The king is on the battlefield now. The king has showed up. And in verses 15 through 19, we see that big change occurring. We see a move from kindness to judgment. Kindness to judgment. Here's what happened. After the Syrians fled, they themselves were humiliated by their weakness in the face of Israel. So they decided to regroup and to go back out to pursue Israel. That's what we see in verses 15 and 16. They get back home. I don't know if they got ridiculed. I, I don't know if people made fun of them. What kind of losers are you running from Israel? Get back out there. Show them who's boss. Well, whatever it was that motivated them, they regrouped, and sure enough, they went right back out there. And then we see that instead of sending just Joab this time, David decides he's going to come with them. The Syrians once again showed the aggression. They, they initiated this attack. But unlike the last time, the king's patience ran out. And what we read here is that bloodshed ensued. Tens of thousands died. Even the commander of Hadadar, Hadadar's, I can't say it now, Hadadadar, I'm not even saying it right, that guy, Shobach, he died too, all right? He died too. It's actually interesting because persistent aggression against the kingdom of God led to a violent confrontation with the king himself. Think about this. Persistent aggression against the kingdom of God. It led to a violent confrontation with the king himself. A confrontation that ended in victory for God's king. We saw that back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's God's king. So wherever God's king goes, victory will follow. And the same is true with King Jesus. This persistent aggression of ungodliness against the kingdom of God today, it will one day lead to a violent confrontation with the king of heaven himself. And guess what? The king of heaven is going to win. That's why today is the day of salvation. The time in which we live at this moment is a time when the king is showing kindness and patience. We live in what we call the age of grace. The king is being kind. The king is being patient, but one day his patience will end. He will show up. He will show up. And all who have made peace with him and have acknowledged his kindness will be saved. But those who have ignored his kindness and fought against him in his kingdom will experience eternal judgment. That's what this entire chapter is all about. It's about the consequences of rejecting the king's kindness. The consequences of rejecting the king's kindness. 
But his kindness to you today, it's to lead you to repentance. Consider the end of verse number 19. Notice what it says. It says that the Syrians made peace with Israel. They made peace with Israel. And they decided not to join up with Ammon anymore. (laughs) I kind of chuckle at that. Yeah, you think? Yeah, it's probably a good idea that you not partner with them, that you partner with God's king over here. That's probably going to be the better side of things from now on. But isn't it a picture of salvation? Because this is the essence of redemption. It's about making peace with God through King Jesus and choosing to partner with him, to follow him, and not to reject him any longer. There's a psalm that goes right along with this. Psalm 2, let's read it as we close. Would you turn over there briefly? Psalm 2, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We heard this preached on in the month of July. Hopefully this passage will bring you a little bit of clarity as to what is being said here in Psalm 2. The king's kindness, the king's patience, the king shows up. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. Why are they so aggressive against a kind king? Turn on the news. Hear hear what our children say when they come back from school. Why are people so aggressively against the king? Why do they keep plotting against him? Anything and everything today is justifiable except the king of heaven. Verse 2, the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. They all come together against him, saying, let us break their bonds into pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, however, will laugh because the day is coming, the Lord is going to hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. For I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. There's his judgment. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So be wise, O kings. Be wise, Ammon. Be wise, Syria. Be wise, whoever you are here tonight. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Partner with him. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled. But just a little. But look at the last phrase. Blessed are those who've made peace with him. Blessed are those who have put their trust in him. Well, that's what God wants to get our attention with tonight. The king's kindness, the king's patience, and the king shows up. Whose side are you on tonight? I want you to know he's patiently waiting, but one day he will wait no longer. An old hymn we used to sing, softly and tenderly Jesus is calling.
calling, oh sinner, come home. Well, I, I pray that one day you'll wake up and realize, you know, it's not really a good thing to be on Ammon's side. I'm going to go over here with the kingdom of God. For there is where victory is. And there is where kindness lives. Let's stand together for prayer.